0: This year is the comeback in professional baseball. The year of the comeback. Several players are back in the major leagues after overcoming major league setbacks and obstacles. And the best comeback of the spring belongs to the brave slugger Andres Galarraga. This time last year, he was battling cancer, hoping just to survive, to stay alive. Playing baseball again seemed to be such a stretch. How inspirational, though, to see him leading the team again in homers, batting close to 300. The big cat is back. This was the challenge for the southern kingdom of Judah. Second Kings closes with the sacking of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. The Jews were hauled off to Babylon, where God sentenced them to 70 years of hard labor. Jews who had flirted with idols were forced to live in an idolatrous land. Their period of exile was designed to cultivate in them a hatred for idolatry and a renewed longing in their hearts for God. God was preparing them for a new start. The new start became a reality. When the Babylonians fell to the Persians in 536 B.C., King Cyrus of the Persians issued a decree allowing the Jews to return home and rebuild their temple. Hey, the comeback was on, but the comeback was tough. The city was in rubble. The land lay barren. The Jews who returned literally had to start over. And one of the exiles who returned to Jerusalem was a priest named Ezra. And Ezra encouraged his fellow Jews, by writing a chronicle of their history. He highlighted how God had worked in their past, and he emphasized that God's plan was not complete. Ezra got the Jews excited again about their future by reminding them of their glorious past. You'll notice immediately that Chronicles repeats much of the material in Second Samuel and in First and Second Kings. But from a different slant. For the most part, 1st and 2nd Chronicles ignores Israel to the north and spotlights exclusively on Judah in the south. You remember 1st and 2nd Kings sort of flip-flop back and forth between the two neighbors, but Chronicles deals with Judah and the kings of the Davidic dynasty. 1st and 2nd Chronicles were penned to encourage a comeback. Guys, we would do well to chronicle the wonderful works that God does in our lives. So often we forget the way God has worked, especially the little daily miracles. I think we're wise to keep a chronicle. We might call it a journal, to jot down the ways that God has worked, to remind ourselves constantly of God's faithfulness. First Chronicles begins with the genealogy of the tribe of Judah. It's interesting, before a person can decide what to do, it's helpful to decide who they are. And it's important that they understood their genealogy, their identity, their family heritage. You know, the sequence is even true in our lives. It's identity that shapes attitude, then it's attitude that shapes action. Proverbs 23, verse 7 is true. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How you see yourself will determine how you live your life. If you see yourself in Christ as a saved and sealed, born again child of God, you'll seek to live that way. But if you see yourself in limbo or even apart from God, you'll wander away. I've got an interesting picture. Maybe Rico can flash it up for us. It's a cat looking at itself in a mirror. But the image reflected back in the mirror is that of a lion. And the caption reads, What matters most is how you see yourself. And that picture is not lion. It's true. It's important that we see ourselves as lions in Christ. Born again. Bought by the blood of Christ. Bold in the power of the Spirit. It's interesting, the symbol of the tribe of Judah was a lion. This battle scarred, defeated and deflated Jews who had returned to the land felt like a kitty cat, but in God's eyes, they were a lion and they needed to see themselves that way. That's why Ezra begins with an ancestral genealogy intended to remind these dejected people that lion-hearted blood still coursed through their veins. Our own personal comebacks get derailed when we feel a little kittenish. When fear causes us to shrink back from the challenges. But if we're truly in Christ, it's time to let the real cat out of the bag. Hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah lives in you. That makes you lionish. The big cat is not Andres, but Jesus And he lives in you. And the key to victory in the Christian life is to see yourself as a lion through the Christ who works in you. Now, in the melting pot we call America, the first nine chapters are a bunch of boring begots. Genealogical records may be fun for us to pursue as a pastime, but in our country, it's not really a big deal. But not so with the Jews, Genealogies were extremely significant. First of all, it was their link to the land. You remember when Joshua came into Palestine, he divided the land among families. And a person's tribal identity was their title deed to where they could settle. Second, in the case of the Levites in particularly, a person's occupation was determined by their pedigree. You remember only members of the Levites were allowed to be priests and allowed to work in the temple. And third, the right to rule was also determined by genealogy. The ultimate ruler of all the world, the Messiah, was promised to be a descendant of David. And the genealogies here in First Chronicles are important in tracing back even the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 1, verses 1 through 29, takes us from Adam to Abraham, about 4,000 years And it spotlights the three sons of Noah. These were the men who fathered the earth's three major people groups. Jephthah fathered the Caucasian races. Shem sired the Oriental peoples. And the descendants of Ham became the Africans. Verse 19 is intriguing. It says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days... The earth was divided. Scientists today hypothesize that the earth was once one large landmass, all connected. They even have a name for it, Pangea. And I believe the global flood of Noah's day, the massive runoffs and the erosion, caused the continents to break apart and drift from each other. This may be what Ezra is referring to here. It occurred at the time of Peleg, which incidentally means division. The rest of chapter one focuses in on the family of Abraham, particularly the sons of Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. And among the kings of Edom, notice in verse 44 there's mentioned a man named Jobab. And it's extremely possible, but this is the same man that the Bible refers to as Job. And we'll read his story a little later. Chapter two. Verses 1 through 2 mentions the 12 sons of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, or Israel. And Ezra gives us this genealogy, the genealogy of each of the tribes and the boundaries of their territory. Chapters 2 through 4 spotlights the tribe of Judah and two families particularly, the family of Caleb and the family of David. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 lists David's seven wives, his 19 sons, his one daughter, and where they were born. You remember, David reigned seven and a half years in Hebron over the tribe of Judah, and then 33 years in Jerusalem over a united kingdom of all 12 tribes. And it was during David's days that Israel reached her golden age. Notice chapter 3, verse 5. There we have mentioned the four sons of, born to David by his wife Bathsheba, or as we know her, Bathsheba. And it's interesting, you will find nothing in the book of Chronicles that refers to David's adultery to Bathsheba. Obviously, that was an important element in the plot, as we read back in 2 Samuel, but not in Chronicles. Also, you'll find nothing about the mistakes that David made after his adultery with Bathsheba. No mention of the death of the son that he and Bathsheba sired or the moral decline that it all caused in David's family. You won't find Amnon's rape of Tamar, the rebellion of Absalom and David's forced exodus from Jerusalem, even the coup attempt by Adonijah. They're all conspicuously missing from Ezra's account of Judah's history here in Chronicles. There are only a couple of David's mistakes mentioned in Chronicles. His mistake in bringing the ark up to Jerusalem and then his sin in numbering the people of Israel. Some might accuse Ezra of a cover-up. What are you doing, Ezra? Why not be honest with all of the facts? But remember Ezra's purpose. Ezra is writing to encourage a defeated people. These Jews don't need to be reminded of their failure. They've spent 70 years in exile as punishment for their failure. The Jews for whom Ezra is writing need a pick-me-up. They need to focus on the positive in their past, not the negative. I think this is true of any person who is truly repentant of their sin. Some pastors think it's their duty to constantly remind us of how sorry we are. Hey, if we're repentant, we know how sorry we are. We know how sick and sinful we can be. We need encouragement to get our eyes off of our failures and focus on what Jesus has done for us. We need to see ourselves in Christ. It's exciting to me that the heir to David's throne, Solomon, God's chosen successor, was also a son of Bathsheba. It was God's way of reminding us of how he can redeem, of how he can forgive, of how he can provide second chances. God redeemed David's sinful slide with a successor named Solomon. Yes, God hated the sin. He hated that adultery and the aftermath of what it caused. God hated it. And that sin was costly to David. The son conceived on that adulterous night died shortly after its birth. But the glorious thing about God's forgiveness is that it lets us pick up at the point of repentance and start over. And this is what Ezra is pointing out to these post-exile Jews. That if you can start over after a Bathsheba, then you can start over after a a Babylon. As a matter of fact, you can start over after anything. Never forget, our God is a God of another chance. The latter half of chapter 3 is important because it traces the descendants of David down through the sons of a man named Zerubbabel. And this was the leader of the Jews who returned to Babylon. And here Ezra makes this vital link between the descendants of David before the exile and the Jews who return after the exile. The 70 years that Judah had spent in Babylon didn't interfere with the lineage of David. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 mentions the prayer of Jabez, a wonderful prayer. If you weren't here this morning, by all means, get the tape. The name Jabez means he causes pain. But Jabez did all that he could do to live down that name. His prayer reflects his desire to be a blessing to people, not a pain in the neck. Verse 10 tells us the content of Jabez's prayer. He says, oh, that you would bless me indeed. And enlarge my territory that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain. And Ezra adds, so God granted him what he requested. What a powerful prayer for you and I to emulate. Lord, bless me a bunch. Lord, expand my sphere of influence. Lord, fill me with spiritual power. And Lord, by all means, please protect me from me. From my own failures in flesh. From chapter 4 verse 24. Through chapter 7. Ezra lists the descendants of the tribes. Other than the tribe of Judah. He starts with Simeon. Then Reuben. Gad. Manasseh. East of the Jordan. Levi. Including the sons of Aaron and the high priests. Issachar. Benjamin. Naphtali. The tribe of Manasseh that settled west of the Jordan. Ephraim. Ephraim and Asher. Chapter 5 verses 20 through 22 is an interesting verse. It records a battle that was fought between the tribes of Reuben and Gad. And verse 22 of chapter 5 tells us, many fell dead because the war was God's. This should make the pacifist squirm. Apparently, there there are wars that are necessary and that are even sanctioned and approved by God. Here, we're told that this war was God's. It was within his will and it was fought for noble purposes. Chapter six, verses 31 through 48 is also an interesting genealogy. It records the three priestly divisions established by David to do music in the house of God. The sons of Heman, and you can read one of their songs, it's Psalm 88. The sons of Asaph, Asaph wrote 12 of the 150 psalms compiled in the book by that name. And the sons of Ethan, who were responsible for Psalm 89. What a great job to have. These priests were just to hang out in the temple of the Lord and fill the place with worship. What a great job. David sanctioned them and ordained them to just fill the house of God with praise. David understood the priority of praise and worship. Chapter 8 records the descendants of King Saul, while chapter 9 lists the descendants of the citizens of Jerusalem. In chapter 9, verses 17 through 27, Ezra discusses the ministry of the city's gatekeepers. And ushers and greeters are the modern-day version of the gatekeepers. How many ushers and greeters here tonight? Raise your hand. Great, we've got a few. Well, this is important verses for you. Here we gain some instruction. If you're an usher, if you're a greeter, you play a vital role. You pave the way. You prime the pump, in essence, for people when they enter our church to worship God. Their first impression comes from you. Gatekeepers were also troubleshooters. They anticipated needs. They dealt with any distractions beforehand that might interfere with the flow of worshipers moving in and out of the temple. This is also the function of our ushers and our greeters. Notice several points about the job of the gatekeepers. First, it was a needed position. Thousands of worshipers came to the temple daily. During the feast, the number swelled to tens of thousands. And there were numerous gates, numerous entry points. People were coming in with all different angles. There was a lot to oversee. Second, it was a coordinated position. Notice verse 17 tells us, chapter 9, that they had a chief named Shalom, translated into the Hebrew, Tracy. They had a head usher. Verse 23 says their tasks were carried out by assignment. They had a schedule. They were organized for ministry. Theirs was a coordinated position. It was also an important position. Verses 22 and 26 calls the role a trusted office. Hey, gatekeepers represented God. They provided a first impression, which is so important. Their job was a sacred trust. Fourth, it was an honored position. Verse 19 tells us that the gatekeepers were part of a heritage. They followed in their father's footsteps. Being a gatekeeper was like going to the same college that your dad and your granddad had gone to. You were part of a legacy. Fifth, it's a responsible position. Verse 26 says they had charge. The gatekeeps were given authority. Certain decisions were up to them. Verse 27 tells us they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility. In other words, they felt so responsible for their function that they lived nearby the temple so that they could be available at all times. Sixth, it was a spiritual position. Verse 20 mentions Phineas, the first leader of this order. And here's what said of him, the Lord was with him. Guys, to be a good gatekeeper, you need to be empowered by the Lord. You need His joy, His wisdom, His patience, His love. Ushers and greeters also need the Spirit of God. If you're an usher, if you're a greeter here at Calvary Chapel, you've joined the ranks of the ancient gatekeepers. Be sure to live up to their high standards. In chapter 10, Ezra begins recounting the history of the kingdom of Judah. He starts with the death of Saul. And in recording his death, Ezra sums up Saul's life. Verses 13 and 14 tell us, Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Notice, It was not the Philistines that killed Saul in reality. It was God. Saul died because of punishment for his unfaithfulness. It Reminds me of the line by comedian Dennis Miller. He says, and believe me, you do not want to get a thumbs down from the person who created thumbs. I think that's true. If Saul were here, he also would echo that sentiment. Chapter 11 describes how all Israel submitted to King David. And to be more accessible to the Hebrew tribes, David moved his capital from Hebron to a more centralized Jerusalem. David defeated the Jebusites that had occupied Jerusalem, and he took the city. And in verse 9, it sums up, Then David went on and became great and the Lord of hosts, was with him. During the reign of David and Solomon, Israel became a world power, a superpower. The Hebrew kingdom cast its shadow over all the world. And the rest of chapter 11 numbers for us David's mighty men. It's been said, strong beliefs win strong men, then make them stronger. And this was the dynamic that brought David's mighty men together made them a formidable force. David's strength attracted strong men, and then his influence made them stronger. The exploits of a few of these men are mentioned in chapter 11. The one story that stands out to me is in verses 15 through 19. David is sitting around one day thinking about old times, and he recalls how sweet the water tasted from the well in Bethlehem. It was his hometown after all. Without thinking, he wishes that he could get a drink from that well. At the time, Bethlehem was under Philistine control. But three of David's men overhear his wish. And so they go behind enemy lines. They risk their necks to bring David back a canteen of water. And David is so overwhelmed by their act of affection. He doesn't deserve such devotion. And so instead of drinking the water, he pours it out as a sacrifice. And he says in verse 19, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. Such extravagant love should be reserved for God alone. That's how David saw it. You know, It shows here the lavishness of real love. That if you really love someone, you'll go to great extremes to show it. Love looks reckless and wasteful and uncouth by everyone but the person in love. But when you really love someone, you're willing to take risks. You're willing to expend resources to express that love. Love is not afraid to lose. Remember when Mary broke the expensive vial of, of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet. It was a pragmatic Judas of Iscariot who questioned her wisdom. He says, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Judas didn't understand the logic of love. To Mary, nothing was more important than showing Jesus how much he meant to her. How about you? Do you understand, really understand the logic of love? When was the last time you attempted the impossible? When was the last time you took a risk or you were accused of being wasteful just to let the Lord know how much you loved Him? The intensity of a love is measured by its extravagance. A love that never takes risks, a love that never exhausts its effort, a love that never spends any time at loving is a love that has grown cold. During David's fugitive years, more and more Israelis abandoned Saul's madness and joined forces with David. And chapter 12 lists the additions. Verse 18 quotes a leader from Gad. But it really expresses the heart of all the men who defected to David. Verse 18 of chapter 12, he says, "'We are yours, O David,' We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. They saw God's hand on David's life. They loved David, and they followed him. In chapter 14, we see David's army in action. The Philistines conduct a raid. And David asked the Lord how he should respond. And we're told in verse 10 of chapter 14, the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. David obeyed, and a great victory was won. In verse 11, David calls the site of the victory, Bel Perazim, which means Lord of the Breakthrough. What a wonderful name for God. He is the Lord of the Breakthrough. Perhaps you've been beating your head against the same wall for years and years and years. You've tried a million ways to get out of the handcuffs that holds you. What you need is a breakthrough. Well, I know where you can turn. Jesus Christ specializes in breakthroughs. Our God is the Lord of the breakthrough. But there's an interesting twist in chapter 14. The Philistines launch another raid under identical circumstances. Most of us would just assume that God would win the victory in a similar strategy. But David doesn't take anything for granted. He prays again, and this time God tells him in verse 14, You shall not go up after them. Just the opposite of what he told him before. Circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees... Then you should go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Go and camp around these mulberry trees. And when you hear the wind blowing in the tops of the trees, so it sounds like marching, that's when you're to pounce. Here's the point. Just because God works one way in the past doesn't mean he'll work that way in the future. Don't assume. Just seek God. David follows God's instructions, even though they're just the opposite of what God had told him before. And guess what? He wins again. He waits on the wind to rustle the tops of the mulberry trees. And we, too, need to wait on the rustling wind. We need to be led by the wind of the Holy Spirit, that mighty rushing wind. You see, pre-programmed solutions are not God's method. God wants us to learn His will by abiding in fellowship with Him. Just listening to Him. Always attentive, always open to what He might want to say or do. Chapter 13 recalls David's mistake in bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. David's desire was noble, but his methods were ill-informed. You see, the law of Moses had made it clear that the ark was supposed to be carried on poles by the Levites. David, though, acts like he's from Alabama. And he just sort of plops the ark on the back of a flatbed truck, on the back of a cart. And when it starts to slide, a man by the name of Uzzah braces it with his hand. And because Uzzah touches the holy ark, God strikes him dead. Uzzah should have known better than to be a part of such an ill-fated mission. And verse 11 tells us of chapter 13, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. David became angry with God. But David should have been angry with himself. Uzzah's is the one that messed up David. Uzzah is the one that messed up you get that? Everybody understand that? David's the one that messed up, not God. Guys, God not only wants our worship, He wants us to worship Him in the way He desires. He doesn't just just care about our motives. Certainly our motive is important, but He also cares about our methods. If we have the right motive, that will translate and shape our methods. Simply meaning well is not enough. Truth is important to God, and our methods need to reflect His truth. You see, real worship, worship that truly pleases the heart of God, it always honors and reflects God's truth. Not just our passion, but God's truth. Jesus said in John 4, verse 23, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Their motive will be right, but they'll also worship in truth. Their method will be right as well. Right motives and right methods count to God. David has learned his lesson by the time we get to chapter 15. And when he tries again to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he states up front in verse 2, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. This time, David's method reflects God's truth. Now, David appoints singers, and musicians to accompany the art to Jerusalem. And he also understands the priority here that God places on praise. For I love verse 16. We're told, Singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps and cymbals, by raising the voice with a resounding joy. And I love that phrase, resounding joy. Biblical worship here is summed up in two words resounding joy in other words true praise is nothing more than the echo of the joy that god puts in our hearts god fills our hearts with his joy then we praise god in return it is a resounding joy he sounds it in our hearts and then we echo it back to him that's true worship that's true praise It's just reflecting the love that God has put in our hearts. David went home that night with this resounding joy in his heart. The ark was now in the capital of Jerusalem, but when he arrives home, his wife Michael throws a damper on the day. Verse 29 tells us, As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, that Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music. And she despised him in her heart. 2 Samuel chapter 6 says they had words. The two lovebirds laid an egg. Understand, Michael was Saul's daughter. And above all else, Saul was concerned with image. Saul's idol was not a graven image, but his own self-image. Saul always tried to act dignified and royal in public. He always kept up this image. He would never humble himself before the people. Michael thought that David's uninhibited display of worship, his whirling about, lacked the dignity of a king. David, though, had a different idea of what it meant to be king. David was more concerned with pleasing God than maintaining a proper image Saul followed his approval ratings on CSN. That's what he did, you know, to determine his behavior. David, though, followed his heart. David wanted to please God. Chapter 16 tells us that David placed the ark in a tent in Jerusalem. The chapter also contains a psalm. And it seems to have been a compilation of several songs that David had written at different times Psalm 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. The psalm praises God for his faithfulness. Several verses stand out to me. Verse 25 shouts, The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Verse 29 says, Give to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Verse 31 tells us, Let the heavens rejoice. And let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations the lord reigns and finally verse 34 oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever it's a wonderful song i encourage you to read it later in its entirety and let it speak to your heart in chapter 17 david strikes a de- a god strikes a deal with david and chapter 17 becomes one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. For it establishes who is entitled to rule God's eternal kingdom. David wants to build God a temple or a house. But instead, God promises to build David a house or, in essence, a dynasty. David is promised an heir who will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. God declares in verse 14... And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. And guys, this is why the New Testament writers, Matthew and Luke, open up their gospels by tracing the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to King David. Why? Because Jesus was the ruler that God promised would come through the lineage of David. Understand, anyone who claims to be Savior or Messiah and cannot trace his lineage back to David is an imposter, according to first Chronicles chapter seventeen. It's interesting that shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven the temple was burned, and all of the genealogies of the Jews were destroyed. And I believe God allowed the destruction of the temple because it was no longer needed. Messiah had already come. Jesus had proved his Davidic ancestry. That's why anyone who comes after Jesus and claims to be the Messiah can't prove it. He's an imposter because he can't prove it because he has no genealogical records to go back to. God allowed the temple to be destroyed because the proof had already been made. Jesus had already come. The Messiah had been connected with David and therefore those genealogical records were no longer needed. And I believe God deliberately had them burned and destroyed so that no one coming thereafter could lay claim. David's humility and his heart for God is shown by his reaction to God's promise. Verse 16 says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And guys, that's exactly how we all should feel. God has brought us all so, so far. Hadn't He you? He has me. He's brought me a long way. And I'm thankful. You know, at times we get down about our spiritual progress. But look at where you are compared to where you used to be. So often we look at where we are compared to where we want to be. And we can get depressed. But look at where you are compared to where you used to be. God has brought you so far. And he's not through with you yet. He has a wonderful plan for you and a plan for your family, just like he did David. Let's be thankful, both for how far we've come and for how far God wants to take us. Chapters 18 through 20 record more of David's military conquests. His victories over the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Philistines. Chapter 18, verse 13 sort of sums up David's successes. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. Wherever he went. David's cabinet members are listed for us in chapter 18, verses 14 through 17. And in chapter 20, verses 4 through 8, Ezra mentions David's battles with the Philistine giants. The parallel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 21 also contains the same material, almost. If you compare the two passages, you'll discover that Ezra, here in Chronicles, leaves out one encounter that is mentioned in Second Samuel, chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. In Second Samuel, we're told of a giant by the name of Ishbi benob who thought he could kill David. And he almost did. It was Abishai who came to David's rescue at a moment of weakness and defended him at the last second and saved his life. But Ezra leaves that encounter out. And why? Remember his purpose. He's trying to encourage his people, not frighten them. He's recalling decisive victories, not near misses. And so for his purpose here in the Chronicles, he leaves out that particular episode. Chapter 21 records David's sin in numbering his subjects. Remember, in Bible times, counting implied ownership. That's still implied today. I mean, you don't count somebody else's stuff. You know if your neighbor's leaning over the fence counting your rose bushes you want to know why what are you what are you planning what are you plotting that's mine you don't count something that belongs to somebody else and david's desire to number the people sprang from his desire to flaunt the vastness of his own kingdom satan stirred his ego and god had to judge david There have been times when we have needed to count our attendance out of love and respect for people. Courtesy requires that we know how many parking spots we need to provide, how many seats we need to provide. All counting isn't evil. It depends on our motive. But here's the rule that we apply which guides our attendance taking. There is nothing wrong with counting the people as long as it's the people that count. Make sure it's not your ego. Make sure we're not counting the numbers so that we can flaunt them and puff ourselves up and say, oh, look at how many people are coming to our church. Of course, after his sin, God gives David his choice and punishment. Three years of famine, three months of military defeats or a three-day plague from God. And David chooses the plague. And tragically, 70,000 people die. One man's pride and stubbornness can produce devastating effects on many people around him. It's amazing. The plague stops when David makes sacrifice at the threshing floor of Ornon. And that threshing floor will become the site on which Solomon builds the temple. When David first asked Ornon to sell him the property, Ornon wanted to give it to the king but David tells him in verse 24, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. Isn't that interesting? With that which costs me nothing. David wants God to know his love for him has no limits. It's a lavish love, a sacrificial love. And therefore, he demands that he pay a price for what he's going to devote and give to God. You see, love is not content with tipping God. The concern in real love for God is not how little can I get by with giving. Real love asks, how much can I sacrifice? What can I do here to show God the depth and vastness of my love for him? Love always gives God its best. And that's what David seeks to do here. In chapter 22, verse 5, King David shows his wisdom. He says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. And so David made abundant preparations before his death. What wisdom. He helped Solomon out beforehand, before he died. Gathering together all of the materials and preparations and so forth that he would need to do the construction. Verse 8 reveals for the first time why God refused to allow David himself to build the temple. God tells David, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. It would not be proper. For a man of war, to construct a house of peace. And it's interesting, Solomon, who does build the temple, his name means peaceable. David gives instructions to Solomon in the remainder of chapter 22. In chapters 23 through 26, David continues his preparations for the construction of the temple by organizing the temple workers. 24,000 Levites were set apart to minister within the temple. In chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, tells us that of those 24,000, 6,000 were officers and judges, 4,000 were gatekeepers, and catch this, 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for giving praise. Notice, David was an inventor of musical instruments. And he constructed musical instruments for two purposes. Notice he says here, what's his reason? Which I made for what? For giving praise. That's why he made these instruments. He constructed instruments to magnify the Lord. But he also constructed instruments to prophesy or to proclaim the will of God, the Word of God. Chapter 23, verse 5, says that he made the instruments for giving praise. But in chapter 25, verse 1, we're told that David appointed men to prophesy with harp, string instruments, and cymbals. David's instruments were made to be used to either praise or proclaim the Lord. If you're a musician, let me ask you a question. What's the purpose of your instrument? Are you using it to jam with your friends? Is that its primary purpose? Is your primary purpose to show off your skill or to earn a record contract and become famous? Maybe to entertain yourself or entertain others. I believe the instrument that God has put in your hands, He has made for a higher purpose. He's made it for you to glorify Him. He's made it for you to proclaim His will and His word to the people around you. Think about why you play that instrument. Think about the purpose of that instrument. David made these instruments for the giving of praise. In chapter 27, Ezra lays out the divisions within David's army and the tribal leaders. David was a prolific organizer. And Ezra points all of this out to stress to the Jews returning from Babylon the importance of organization. It's been said, structure without life is dead, but life without structure is unseen. All living things need organization and structure to function, and that includes even the church. In chapter 28, David calls the nation together and he gives his farewell speech. And he tells the people that God has appointed Solomon to take his place and to build the temple. And he tells Solomon in verse 9, Know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Notice, if you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. It's a promise. If you truly seek the Lord, he'll make himself known. He'll make sure you find him. If you've ever played hide and seek with a two-year-old, you know that it's not uncommon for him to hide in full view of where you're standing. He'll hide right in the middle of the room. And the reason is that a two-year-old enjoys being found a lot more than he does being hidden. This is God's attitude. God desires for every heart to find Him. And that's why He promises to reveal Himself to anyone who makes an honest effort to seek Him. I love what David tells Solomon in verses 11 and 12. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord. There are churches that have substituted organization for the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is so tragic. But I don't think we should go to the other extreme. I get frustrated with believers who consider all planning and all organization to be a fleshly activity. They believe in just letting the Holy Spirit lead. As if, you know, that meant no planning, no organization. Notice the one verse 12. David got his plans from where? Where did he get his plans? From the Spirit. I believe in Spirit-led organization. I believe in spirit-led planning. We need to plan. It maximizes our resources. It directs our energies. Yes, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit, but we also need to plan and organize. And I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. I think we need to seek the Lord and let the Spirit lead us in our planning and in our structuring. At the end of chapter 28, David itemizes the materials he's readied for the temple. And David's preparation certainly will make Solomon's job a lot easier. In the first nine verses of chapter 29, the people follow David's example and they give financially to the building of the temple. Verse 9 sort of sums it all up. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord And King David also rejoiced greatly. Acts 20, verse 35 recalls a quote from our Lord. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, giving always unleashes God's blessing. When you give freely to God, God in turn will give freely to you. And it's a fact no one has ever outgiven God. On this occasion, their giving was so joyous because it was done willingly. No one made the people give. They didn't feel any pressure, no coercion. When people are forced to give, they lose the joy of giving. It becomes more a chore than an opportunity. Giving should always be voluntary, just as it was here. It should come from our heart. And it should be an expression of our love and our loyalty for God, not some obligation. This verse reminds me of 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. For God loves a cheerful giver. In David's prayer that follows, rather than begrudge the need to give, the king is thankful for the opportunity to give. In verse 14 he prays, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this, for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Imagine everyone in our church putting their offering in the offering box with that kind of an attitude. Oh Lord, thank you for the blessing, for the opportunity to be able to drop this offering in the offering box today and give back to you a little of the great bounty you've given me. I hope that is everyone's attitude. That giving is an opportunity Not an obligation. David is grateful. God has given he and his people so much that it should be only natural that they would give a little of his bounty back to him in return. And this is the proper attitude for giving. Giving is an opportunity to show gratitude. Verse 28 sums up the chapter. So David died in a good old age full of days and riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 29 tells us, The acts of King David, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. Which leads us to believe that First and Second Samuel were probably a compilation of these three books. And that ends for us our summary of the 29 chapters in First Chronicles.